This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're looking tonight at an account that I'm sure is familiar to you. Uh, looking, focusing specifically on verse 47, but obviously with an eye toward uh, the, the context as a whole. This is a passage, actually I've been reading in Luke, in my in New Testament part of my uh, personal devotions, Bible reading, and uh, a couple of weeks ago came across this passage, and it was just a, a passage and a verse that, that struck me in the reading of it. Perhaps you've had that experience where some part of God's truth stands out to you or takes hold of you, uh, grabs your, your, your thoughts, your mind, and uh, won't let go. Well, usually when, when that happens, it's a good idea to pay attention to that verse, that passage. And uh, what we're going to do tonight is pay attention to it, look at it a little more closely. So uh, we're looking tonight, uh, begin our reading in chapter 7, uh, verse 36, Luke seven thirty-six. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and, and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you've judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. but She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. He did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you indeed for the scriptures and pray now as we study them together that uh, you would illuminate them to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Martin Luther was quoted as saying, love God 
Sometimes I hate him. Well, Luther could be shocking in that and in other ways as well, but be assured of one thing. Deep down, when it came down to it, Martin Luther loved God. Martin Luther loved Christ. What about you? Do you love God? How do you know? What does that look like? How did that love come about? How could that love for God grow? Well, as we look at the passage tonight, uh, it addresses some of those very concerns. We know that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. How do we come up with that? How do we gin up that kind of love within us? Can we? Can we just hunker down and try harder and somehow make ourselves love God more? Probably not. But this passage instructs us in how that kind of love for the Lord grows. And as we study it and look at what happened here, we see essentially two truths that arise out of verse 47. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Two truths here I want us to think about tonight. First of all, first truth is this. Great love for Christ grows out of a sense of great forgiveness. Great love for Christ grows out of a sense of great forgiveness. That's what Jesus says here. It arises out of a sense of our own sinfulness. Out of a sense that we are sinful, that we are displeasing to God, that we are thoroughly sinful through and through. And that may be because we know that our sins are great, because our sins are many. And Jesus acknowledges that about this woman, her sins, which are many. Now, he's responding not to the words, but to the thinking of this Pharisee, Simon, who had invited Jesus over. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house. He was there dining with him. This hospitality on the part of the, the, the Pharisee when this woman comes in. And she starts attending to Jesus in these ways. And the Pharisee was bothered by this. Simon thought, well, this man was really a prophet. He didn't know all about this woman. He would know what kind of person she is. Now, Luke describes her in verse 37 as a sinner. Simon himself describes her in his mind, in verse 39, as a sinner. Jesus himself acknowledges in verse 47 that her sins are many. Sometimes we have a sense of sinfulness simply because of the magnitude of our sins. You know, we saw this morning where Peter said that that we should not suffer as a murderer. shouldn't suffer as a thief. We shouldn't suffer for, as being a Christian for those kinds of things. But there are Christians who are guilty of murder, at least prior to becoming a Christian, maybe after their profession of faith in Christ. Now, there are people who have become Christians out of a life that is characterized by, a life that is saturated by sin. These people know that they are sinful. There's great sin there. In fact, it may be so great that they really struggle with whether or not God can forgive 
such heinous sins, such numerous sins as they know that they are guilty of. And, and this woman apparently falls into that category because Luke, Simon, and Jesus, all three, acknowledge the greatness, the magnitude of their sins, of her, of her sins. And so, you know, in her case, these sins are great. They're huge. They're obvious. She has no problem acknowledging that she's sinful. Now, sometimes the sins may be great, not because they are great, but because they seem great. This may be the case with many of you. It's often the case with people who have grown up in the church. Our catechism teaches us there are some sins that are more heinous, that are more wicked than others because of the very nature of the sin itself and because of aggravations that arise out of it. For example, lust is a sin. It's a bad sin. It's a violation of the command of God. But adultery also is a sin that arises out of lust and is, I would argue, a worse sin than lust because of the nature of the sin itself and because of the aggravations that arise out of it. It directly affects at least one other person, and usually many more people are brought into it than that. It gets to be very public And so it is a worse sin. However, the problem, the danger arises, especially for people who may have grown up in the church, that they look at their lives and they sort of a little bit like this this Pharisee. They, They think they're doing pretty well. I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never robbed a bank. Never done these kinds of things. My sins aren't that great compared to other people. See, we're not comparing ourselves to other people. We have to look at the character of God. We have to look at the law of God. And so you can have a sense of sinfulness because you simply acknowledge your sins are huge and many. But you also have a sense of sinfulness when you recognize the sinfulness even of those sins that are not so obviously horrid, at least in the eyes of the world, because you measure them by the character of God. So that to you, they seem great. They may not in the eyes of the world, but to you, they seem great. So we can have a great sense of sin, one, because our sins simply are great and numerous, but also because the sins we do know are in our lives. Subtle though they may be, inward though they may be, we have a sense of their greatness, a sense so that they seem great. Let me give you a couple of examples. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor swindlers or drunkards or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Well, yes, there are some pretty big sins listed in there. But greedy? You know, uh, how many of us are guilty of greed and don't think twice of it? Well, it's not a big sin. Well, it's listed with some pretty big ones. No, it may not be as bad. Although its outworkings could be bad, but the point is, it is an offense to God, and we should feel the weight of that. It should seem like a great sin before God, 
because, in fact, it is. One other passage, Colossians 3, it's similar. Notice Paul says, of course, there that they are, that was what they were, but they have been washed and they've been cleansed of those things. Colossians 3, uh, beginning in verse 5. He says, put to death uh, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put all, put all these away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So the point here is that great love for Christ grows out of a sense of great forgiveness, but to have a sense of great forgiveness, we have to have a, a sense of great sin, which may come about because our sins are many, and they are obviously visibly horrible. But to recognize that even the sins that are inward, even the sins that are not so obviously wicked, are an affront to a holy God. And we can have just as great a sense of sinfulness, even if we've never murdered somebody, even if we've never lived the homosexual lifestyle, even if we've never committed adultery, as those who have. Now, great love, what does it look like? Great love for Christ grows out of a sense of great forgiveness, grows out of a sense of sin. But what does that kind of love look like that grows out of this kind of forgiveness, to experience the forgiveness of Christ? Well, let's look at it. We see it in this woman. She comes to Jesus, she's a sinner, she heard Jesus was there, she brings this flask of ointment, and she wets his feet, and she wipes them, there's this obvious devotion to him, anoints them with the ointment. Uh, the Pharisee, Simon, is, is very much bothered by that, but there's this devotion to Jesus, and Jesus comments on that in verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Not as a not as an, a, a result, not so much cause and effect. She loved much, so her sins are forgiven. But because her sins are forgiven, she loves much. She's very devoted to Jesus because he has forgiven these great sins. And that should be true not just in her, but it should be true as well in us. A sense of forgiveness that grows out of a great sense of sin results in great love to Christ. So how do you cultivate love for Christ? Well, it's not really by trying directly just to make yourself love him more. It's more by recognizing, one, the greatness of your sins, and two, the greatness of the forgiveness that God has given you when you recognize how great your sins are. So greatness, uh, or great love for Christ, rather, grows out of a sense of great forgiveness. That's what Jesus says. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. But then the opposite is also true, as Jesus mentions that here in verse 47 as well. But, by contrast, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Little love for Christ, small love for Christ, grows out of a sense of little forgiveness. Little love for Christ grows out of a sense of little forgiveness. Not because of little sins. You see, that's the problem. We come back to Simon the Pharisee here, and Jesus, in dealing with the Pharisees, 
was kind of having to do with the two, ed- two, two sides of one coin. On the one hand, in many ways, their lives were exemplary. But that was just the problem. They didn't see themselves as sinners. The flip side of the coin is their sins were just as damning, just as worthy of hell as this woman or anybody else they looked down on as a sinner. They just couldn't see it. And their own sense of righteousness was a tremendous barrier to the gospel. To really recognizing that they too were in need of the grace and forgiveness of Christ. This is a huge danger for people who grow up in the church or who've been in the church for a long time and by the mercy of God have been spared great sin to begin to think of themselves kind of the way Simon thought of himself as pretty good, as doing fairly well, as, as having a righteousness that God would be pleased with when the reality was he too was a sinful man in need of the grace of God. He just didn't see it. He just couldn't. See it. You see, little love for Christ grows out of a sense of little forgiveness or little need for forgiveness, but not because the sins are little, not because there's no sin. It's a blindness. The sins are there. The sins are real. The sins condemn, but we don't see it. We don't recognize our deep need. And you see here these classic symptoms of self-righteousness. Look at them. Seeing only the sins of others. He doesn't see the irony in thinking of this woman as a sinner. And apparently excluding himself from that category. True, her sins were more public, perhaps. True, her sins are more notorious. True, her sins are more obviously wicked. But he doesn't see the irony in thinking of, if he only knew what kind of person this was. She's a sinner. So was he. Just doesn't see it. You get that same irony when Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As if there's a category of people who are righteous and there's a category of people who are sinners. The irony in that statement is, we're all sinners. There are no righteous. That's why Jesus didn't come to call them. Came to call sinners. That includes everybody. Category of righteous is empty. Came to call sinners. To repentance. Well, Simon doesn't see that. The man just recognizes it. Classic symptom of self-righteousness. There's me and then there's sinners. Another classic symptom of self-righteousness is not only seeing a category of sinners out there and it doesn't include me, but looking down on those that I classify as sinful. Now, this doesn't mean we don't call sin, sin. It doesn't mean that we don't regret or lament the, the, the obvious and heinous and wicked sin that we see in the lives of people. Not because we're better than they are, but because of the destructiveness, the damage, damaging nature of sin, the harm that it causes them and those around them. But nevertheless, you get back to this this symptom of self-righteousness that not only places others as sinners, but looks down on them as sinners, elevating myself above them. Now, by human nature, that's easy to do. But in Christian nature, that is completely wrong. Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? We have no reason to elevate ourselves above others whose sins are particularly obvious or destructive to themselves or others. 
We recognize as followers of Christ that the only reason that we are not there is the grace of God, that we have received his grace, that we've been preserved from that by his grace. So one classic symptom of self-righteousness we see here is the tendency to see people as sinners, and I'm not part of that category, a tendency to look down on those that we place in this category of sinners. In other words, there's this tendency toward elder brother behavior. Say elder brother, you know, I'm referring to the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, just a few chapters later. Turn over to Luke 15. This isn't Simon, but it might as well be. Luke 15, verse 29. You'll know, of course, that the uh, the man with two sons uh, had one of his sons, the younger son, ask for his share of the inheritance, which his father gave him. He takes off, goes into a far country, and lives a wild and expensive life until finally all his money's gone and he's in need, and he finally sinks to the level of uh, just working in the field feeding pigs, and he was so hungry he even wanted to eat what he was feeding the pigs. Nobody gave him anything. And he finally comes to himself and thinks, this is ridiculous, I'm going to go home and, and ask my father to take me back as a servant. At least I'll, uh, I'll, have, I'll have plenty to eat and be okay, not worthy to be his son, but I'll be his servant. Of course, you know that wonderful scene when he arises, he comes to his father, And while he's still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion on him. He runs to him and embraces him and is so delighted that his son has come home despite all that has happened that he wants to have a big celebration. He killed the fatted calf and and commemorate and celebrate the fact that his son has returned. And for many people, the parable of the prodigal son seems to end there. But that's not where Jesus ended it. He ends it with the resentment of the older son, the elder brother, who hears all of this and says, what's going on? And one of the servants says, well, your brother uh, has come home and your father's killed the fatted calf because he's received him back. What is the reaction of the elder brother? He was angry. And he refused to join in the celebration. His father comes out and, and pleads with him. And then you see the mindset, the elder brother mindset in Luke 15, verse 29. This is Simon. This was the Pharisees as a whole, not every one of them. And this is many people in the church today. He answered his father, look, after many, these many years, I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. A sense of earning God's favor. God owes me. I like the way the NIV renders verse 29. Look, all these years I've slaved for you. You know, I've served you. I've done all this. Then this is the thanks I get. That's the elder brother mindset. That's Simon's mindset. God owes me. I'm not like this woman. I'm not like this sinner. I'm better than that. Along with that, resenting grace toward others less deserving. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. How dare you? 
He needs punishment, not grace. He went out and sinned like this. He dishonored you. He shamed our family. And you celebrate when he returns? He deserves to be shunned. He deserves to be punished. And I slave for you. You've never done anything for me. That's Simon. Is that you? Is your relationship with God based on slaving for him, expecting that God owes you something in return? Now, we'd never say we're saved by that. Of course not. But do you somehow feel like God owes you because you're here on a Sunday night on Mother's Day? That you've given to the church for years? That you've stayed away from the more gross sins? Beware the elder brother syndrome, the elder brother mindset, sense of earning God's favor, resentment that God shows mercy and grace to those who have sinned against him. How dare they sin against God, right? Wrong. We've all sinned against God. We're all recipients of God's grace. Who's in danger of this kind of thing? Well, first of all, the nominal Christian, the person who fills a pew Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and yet really has never understood the gospel, really has never believed in Christ, or they believe in him in a superficial sense, but don't really understand what that has to do with their salvation. They really think they're making it on their own. The nominal Christian, the Christian in name only, fills the roles of many churches. These kinds of people do. Their relationship with God is based on the fact that they're toeing the line, that they're there on Sunday, that they give to the church, that they've taught Sunday school for decades, and yet they've never really understood the grace of God. The nominal Christian is one person who's in danger of this kind of mindset. Another person in danger of this kind of mindset is a real Christian who has been a Christian for a very long time. And the sense of forgiveness, the sense of the joy of sins removed, pardon and forgiven is a distant memory. Because it's been a really long time since they've ever really repented of sin since they've ever felt the weight of guilt and the the relief and the joy of that sense of guilt being removed, it's been a very long time. And in the meantime, they've served the Lord well, faithfully, diligently. And God, you owe me for this. And you fall into that elder brother mindset. You fall into the thinking of Simon the Pharisee, into this works mentality that, yes, I'm saved by grace, but somehow over the years, my relationship to the Lord has come to be defined by my works for him. Is that you? Is that me? How long has it been since you really genuinely repented of sin in your life? Wicked sins, heinous sins, like pride. Like looking down with a with a contemptuous eye at the sinners around you in your neighborhood. How long has it been since you really felt the weight of your own sin and repented of it and turned from it? You see, the danger is that little love for Christ grows out of a sense of little forgiveness. Great love for Christ grows out of a sense of great Forgiveness. And that's what Jesus says here. He says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Do you love Christ? Do you want to grow in your love for Christ? Then you need to be aware both of the sinfulness of your sin and the joy 
the earth-shaking joy of those words in verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. God accepts you. God loves you. God welcomes you. God is delighted to call you his in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what prevents that elder brother mentality from creeping into our lives. Then the people say, well, who is this who even forgives sins? He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Not her works, not her washing Jesus' feet. The faith of which those things was an expression. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, the way to love Christ more is not to try to conjure up love in our hearts. You know, I ought to love him, and if I can just make myself somehow feel that love. Rather, it's to reflect on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your own heart. It's to meditate on just how much you, yes, you, have been forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us never lose sight of your holiness. Let us never lose sight of the thorough sinfulness of sin, our own sin, the sins of those of us represented here in this room tonight. Father, let us never lose a sense of the wonder of the gospel that Jesus says to us because of what he did for us. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, Father, keep us from falling into that works mentality to a sort of low-level satisfaction with ourselves, even as we look down on others. Father, help us to feel for them, to desire for them the same gospel that has saved us. Renew in us, Lord, a deep and thoroughgoing and joyful love for you, because you've saved us. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.